It's election time in the UK, and this made me interested in taking a further look at who the people behind the politicians are. Therefore, I invited spin doctor Paul Richards into the studio for talk about how the scene is set, what current trends are happening, and what to look out for. Paul has more than 25 years of experience as a spin doctor. He's the editor of Tony Blair's book, In His Own Words, and he's been advisor of several cabinet ministers. Right, on with the show. From Studio Roo, I'm Yessie Fram, and this is Bosses for Breakfast, the show where I talk with entrepreneurs, creatives, and inspiring visionaries about their successes and their failures around advertising and what they're bringing forward today. Hey, Paul, thank you for joining the show. Yes, you're very welcome. Nice to be here. Well, it's a big pleasure. Firstly, i know I've been up early this morning. I, I don't know about you. What's your usual morning routine? You you made it all the way to London. Yes, of course, we're in the middle of the election in the UK. So for us, this is Christmas come early. Um, <laughs> and the day starts uh, with the social media and then a look around the mainstream media agenda and just seeing what's happened in the election and what's going to be happening in the election. Oh, it's keeping you busy. Um, of course. Yeah. So you are a spin doctor. Uh, yes. What does that mean? Can you tell me a little bit about your career journey and also just give some insight to what that is? It's an American term and it came into use really a few years ago now in the 80s and 90s. And the idea is that if you're playing a sport, you can put the spin on a ball, whether it's you know snooker or tennis or squash, and it can send the ball off in a different direction. And the idea is the spin doctor is one who takes a news story or a developing narrative within a campaign and tries to influence the way it goes in sending it off into a direction of benefit to their their client, in this case, a politician. Mm. So it's that idea of sort of influencing the media narrative and therefore the way we think and feel about politics or anything that you're trying to uh, promote. Okay. And on a day-to-day basis, what does that mean for you? Well, it depends what role people are in. I mean, I'm luckily, I wrote my book, Be Your Own Spin Doctor, and I can sit back now and watch other people do it more and uh, observe and commentate. But if you're in the absolute thick of it, then it is a hand-to-hand combat with your opponents in other political parties, trying to get your candidate elected, trying to get your party elected, and understanding that the media, in all of its glory, both social media and what we call mainstream media, is one of the ways that people are going to be massively influenced in an election about how they vote. So ultimately, it's about getting people to come out and vote and support either you or the other guy. So that's <laughs> that's uh, that's what it's all about, They're, really. Yeah. And people are influenced by the media, aren't they? You know, you think, well, the sort of stories that people talk about to each other over a coffee, the things that people chat about online, they are influenced by what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've read on all the different media platforms. So it is an important way to reach audiences. Yeah. So there's been a lot of focus on um, how politicians used social media during the 2016 referendum. And now we are, as you're mentioning, having the election coming up again. Are there a lot of differences from then till now in terms of how this is being used? I think one of the main things to understand is that the technology is moving on. And even if there wasn't any technology, every election is different. So every we always approach each election or referendum in this case, thinking it's going to be the same as the last one. And it never is. It's like fighting a war, you know. 
know, everyone always fights the last war, not the one they're fighting. And then they have to learn how to update themselves. So I think uh, in the referendum in the UK, particularly on the leave side, there was a very sophisticated use of data and a very sophisticated use of Facebook advertising in particular. I think there's a lot of Facebook advertising going on, but not in the, not in the same way. And I think, you know, this election, when the dust settles, we'll see maybe different patterns of social media use, particularly Twitter, I think, which seems to be very powerful, but mm. other forms too. And it won't be the same as the referendum, you know, and if you try and extrapolate one onto the other, it never works because the number of variables is so big. People's behaviour is different. It's a slightly different electorate three years on and uh, it's a different set of issues. So it's it's not the same. Mm. It seems like it's becoming very professional. I heard that the the Conservatives, they hired Sean Topham and Ben Guerin, from, which is like very famous New Zealand duo, to, to run their campaign. Yes, there's a kind of cachet with attracting in foreign talent into political parties. So I think well, if you come from outside and uh, you, you can sort of have, you, you arrive with this, this kind of almost godlike aura of invincibility. And I think the parties like doing that, often, you know, massively expensive as well. People charge yeah. absolute fortunes. But it, it just, just brings a kind of new freshness and insight into the campaign. And uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, on the Labour side, certainly in the past, they've hired in American campaign gurus mm. um, you know for hundreds of thousands of pounds to come up with stuff like a slogan forward not back I think that cost about 400,000 forward not back now you and I could probably have cooked that up in an <laughs> afternoon over a coffee you pay us for doing that right yeah because <laughs> yeah. well, I said I would have done it for half that much you know but um, it's just one of those things that I think the the foreign kind of gives it a bit of excitement and a bit of a, a cachet which you know obviously everyone's trying to win so if that helps then that's what they're prepared to spend the money on yeah um So, you know, but a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff I noticed in this election is actually quite low level, but innovative and low resource videos in particular um, that have been doing the rounds, which haven't cost anything at all. I don't know if you caught the Rosina Allen Khan video from Tooting. She's the Labour candidate. Mm. And she did a she did a fake love actually moment on the doorstep with big posters that she was sort of revealing to a potential voter like in the movie. And uh, that's had uh, hundreds of thousands of retweets and views and lots of plaudits. And people just think that's really good, clever use of social media. Mm. That, what would that have cost her? The cost of a pen and yeah. uh, some some posters, you know. On the other hand, I've been observing Matt Hancock, MP, or not an MP, he's the candidate in West Suffolk. He's been doing these sort of horrific <laughs> pieces to camera and he just looks like he's been constantly startled and they're being ridiculed so it's having the opposite effect so you know you have to be careful don't you yeah are there trending like low budget productions for this for this election in particular Are there are there a um, trend in low product? I think budget? there's a. I think people like um, authenticity, don't they? So yeah. what what they want is a sense that it hasn't cost a lot of money. Yeah, it's, um, all, it's a signal of value almost, isn't it? Yeah, exactly that. And so if people really feel it's genuinely funny, David Gork, who's standing as an independent one, did a sort of an interview with a a gentleman who was supposed to be a switching voter mm. who was you know promising to vote for him. And it looked very to start with quite cheesy, and it was only about two minutes. And at the end, he just said, "Thanks, Dad." And the, <laughs> 
man said thanks son and it was his father so that you know that was funny and it made people watch it to the end for the punchline and of course got some massive amounts of retweets so i think stuff like that really can cut through the multi-million pound marketing campaigns that the parties have put together far more effectively and that's what we like isn't it we like a bit of guerrilla kind of marketing and <laughs> excitement yeah so on that are there any dirty tricks that should have been called out so far yeah there are there's a few uh, fake news moments i've noticed i mean one was pretty horrific in the mm. around the time of the uh, terrorist attack at london bridge Somebody faked a tweet purporting to be from Jeremy Corbyn. I saw that, yeah. And that has done the rounds very fully. I mean, it's been retweeted by many thousands. Mm. Uh, actually, I heard it come out of the lips of a taxi driver in London who retweeted really? it back. So it's sort of thing that has cut through and the people are now repeating. So that was pretty grim. And then uh, I saw supporters of Jeremy Corbyn fake a, a letter purporting to be from a, a rabbi representing an Orthodox Jewish community saying, Corbyn is great, we're going to back Corbyn. And when that was investigated, uh, it didn't exist. So that was fake news as well. So there mm. have been a couple of salient examples of this. Of course, the, the really good fakes are ones you don't even spot. And uh, mm. they, they reinforce your own confirmation bias and your own view of the world. And you, you know, merrily retweet them without actually realising it's fake till it's too late. So, yeah, there's a lot of it going on. A lot of black ops and a lot of fakery and a lot of attempts to skew the election through foul means. Yeah. So do you have a recommendation? I mean, there's obviously all the there's the fake news, but there's also the fact that they hire really highly skilled talent from anywhere in the world, whoever can perform the best for them. I'm just a normal person. How am I going to see through this? Do you have some something you would look well, up? Well, uh, I mean, the election is not really one election, is it? It's 650 local elections between yeah. candidates. And electorates are quite sophisticated. I think they can they can smell BS, they can see, you know, very high production value stuff that kind of they, they know is not authentic. And often it's the case that if it's very glossy and expensive and it looks like it's been produced in Hollywood or somewhere, mm. it has the opposite impact. It has, a, it, you know, it actually people reject it because they think it's too slick. So the People are clever and they can work it out for themselves by and large. And, and don't forget, we're talking about the sort of the, the marketing side of this. I mean, politics mm. isn't isn't marketing in the strict sense of trying to flog a product. Mm. It is. It's a lot like relationship marketing. It goes deep into values. It's about party's presence on the doorstep over five years not just five weeks mm. um, and so lots of other things come into play this is what we used to call the air war uh, but the ground war was the knocking on the doors and the activists going out and about and getting all the data in uh, on, on doorsteps mm. and that still is massively important very old-fashioned but massively important so and they're interesting labor has an advantage because it has more active members than the other parties so maybe that will be decisive who knows mm. yeah Yeah, but it's interesting also because you, you mentioned that it can almost have the opposite effect if it becomes too glossy. But then you look at, you look towards America, you see a Donald Trump who's um, sometimes a funny guy, a clown on Twitter. And then you have um, Boris Johnson, who's it's definitely a thought through look he's going for as well. Why is that? Well, Why Bor does that have a good effect? I mean, what, what Boris's insight is, I think, is that, you know, he is a brand. And even the fact people call him Boris which he's adopted as a name. That's not his first name. His first name is Alexander. And he became a sort of one-word celebrity. You know, if, if you say Boris, people know who you mean. And the disheveled hair, the kind of slightly, you know, posh demeanor, the quoting of the Latin shirt hanging out, all of this stuff is a carefully crafted 
image. It's mm. about a, a, a brand, almost designed to make him look like a, not a real politician, almost like mm. a a guy that is uh, somebody you know who doesn't think about whether their shirt's tucked Next in door. or not. Yeah. And of course, the irony is it's all very carefully. It's an artifice. It's very carefully crafted, carefully thought through. And I've I noticed in the last really just year or two, his opponents have stopped calling him Boris. They start to call him Boris Johnson or Mr Johnson or the Prime uh. Minister to try and break this brand, to try and stop this this sort of idea of <laughs> Boris as a brand. So a um, war going on. Yeah, 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 afraid so. And Donald Trump is similarly a brand. I mean, you know, whether you love him or hate him, mm-hmm. um, it's a very strong visual identity he has mm. and, and sets of slogans and words that go alongside that you can immediately strike up. As a little... I'm an interesting thought exercise for your listeners, Jesse, is if you cast your minds back to the American election mm. and try and name some of Trump's slogans, um, pretty soon you come up with uh, build the wall or make America great again mm. or drain the swamp or lock her up. And if you do the same thought exercise with any of Hillary's slogans, well, it's a bit harder, isn't it? Yeah. And you're trying to think of anything she actually said at all. Mm. And there aren't any that cut through. I mean, there really aren't. Mm. Uh, and this is one way to describe why they lost. To, because if you can't create short, snappy slogans that kind of get into people's minds in the way that Trump did manage, mm. and obviously in the UK, this is what the politicians are trying to do now, then you don't get the traction. And I think of all of the money and expertise that went into Hillary's campaign for us to be able to sit here and not even remember a word she said three years later. Mm. Um, it's tragic, really. So the UK election, uh, Boris's base, Boris Johnson is basically saying, let's get Brexit done a million times a day. Mm. And... Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, he's basically saying the NHS not for sale a million times a day. <laughs> and uh, that's all you're going to hear throughout say. the whole yeah. of the campaign. That's basically it, boiled down. In fact, if you just hear them say that, we yeah. could all have a, a holiday and take the time out. We could choose between the two of them. It seems like you can't choose between those two things, right? It's, yeah. Well, of course, the 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 exactly that. I mean, we have lots of other choices. And the the unfortunate nature of our political system in the UK is it is sort of a black and white, either one or the other, and they're going to be in number 10 Downing Street. But we don't elect a president. We are electing our local representatives. So um, yeah. the system isn't really fit for that kind of campaign. But that's the kind of campaign we end up with. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on, um, I was just mentioning Trump versus Boris Johnson. Are there any, So people have been drawing references to them being a little bit alike. Does that make the spin doctors work a bit harder for Boris Johnson or not? I, do, I can't figure out if he's happy about that reference necessarily. I think they both adopt a kind of what we call populist attitude towards politics, which is, is trying to sort of raise above, rise above everyday politics and, and sort of appeal to other motivating factors. So they're trying to be like each other in that sense. I think it's a bit lazy. You know, we always try and just slot our UK politicians into some kind of American archetype. I mean, Harold Wilson was described as the British Kennedy, you know, which is, can't imagine two people more unlike than that. Um, (laughs) Or, or, you know, Thatcher and Reagan got compared to each other a lot. And again, you can't really imagine more unlike Mm. people apart from in their policy uh, stance. And I think it's just laziness, really. I think we'd just like to say, well, there he's the he's the British Trump, you know, or the Britain Trump, as Trump's described it himself. And so, yeah, I don't think you could really read too much across. I mean, populism is a, you know, a global phenomenon and we could have a whole podcast all about that, which we're mm. not going to now, but um, <laughs> there are similarities there, but that's, that's where it stops, I think. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on out there at the moment. But one of the ones I think got a lot of attention were when the Conservatives changed their Twitter name to Fact Check UK. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that? And is, is that OK to do? I don't think it's OK to do, but I don't think anyone was fooled. And I think the no. danger the danger is, I mean, first of all, Twitter audiences are relatively sophisticated. If you've signed up to political Twitter, mm. you, you kind of do know what's going on, I think. People don't genuinely think it was fact check a neutral uh, attempt because mm. uh, it had cchq on it but i would say i wonder if we all fell into a bit of a trap which was by doing it uh, conservative central office managed to generate a lot of interest around their twitter handle and to people to investigate what they'd actually said and to assess it and then you know here we are right now talking about it so um, it might have been an attempt just to generate some heat and light around their own messaging by being a bit controversial i mean they've broken mm. the rules a couple of times in the election and so i mean sort yeah. of the, the unspoken rules of of Twitter, and I just wonder whether or not it's a, a deliberate thing. I mean, you'll, you may be aware of this idea of the dead cat, which uh, is an, <laughs> an election strategy that uh, was borrowed from another one of these overseas mm. gurus, um, Linton Crosby, who said, "Well, if you if you want to change the conversation that people are having, throw a dead cat onto the table, and everyone stops talking about whatever they were talking about and start mm. talking about the dead cat. Why is there a dead cat on the table? <laughs> so it's a great way to sort of you know shift gear and." Uh, Maybe it was one of them. And the Tories are, you know, and Boris in particular, who's worked closely with Linton Crosby when he was mayor of London, mm. um, he's very good at this, suddenly just changing the, the terms of yeah. debate and the terms of trade and getting us all talking about something else. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. It, they also do it so obvious, as you say, that you can kind of bear with it. So it, it seems worse if it's hidden and you have to figure it out and you're fooling people. And it, it wasn't a real fool. So... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a genuine. I mean, there are lots of bots out there, aren't there? And all the, the sort yeah. of the Russian generated bots, but they are genuinely fake. And you can often tell. Uh, there's a great case, wasn't there, where somebody was saying something about the, the city of Birmingham. Mm. And one of the their correspondents said Brum. And then the bot said, I didn't talk about Brum. I meant Birmingham. And now anyone in the UK knows that Brum is the shorthand for Birmingham. But if you're a Russian bot sitting in you know, Moscow, then you don't know that and you're immediately, immediately sort of uh, unearthed. So, you know, they do tend to get unearthed. But yeah, I just think it's it's an election, all's fair in love and war mm. and elections. And it's one of those things where if the Tories win a majority of, uh, I don't know, 10 seats, mm. the whole campaign will be written up as an absolute triumph of both mm. data and technology and strategy and leadership. If they lose by 10, 10 uh, seats... Mm. It'll be a disaster, you know, from from top to bottom, and, and and that will be held as an example of how it all went wrong. It's a very binary thing, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, not much nuance. No, no. Are there some things you would have done, like if you were the head spin doctor for any of the parties? What would you definitely go and do? Well, I think they've both picked their ground, and I think the key to this is it's a sort of battering ram. You just have to keep saying the same things in different ways mm. over and over again. So I would have. Is had, that an important strategy to do? It, I'm afraid it is. It's that uh, the power of repetition. I mean, we've always known this from advertising mm -hmm. and uh, marketing. And, you know, it's the way you generate the word of mouth. And we used to say to candidates, if you're saying something a thousand times, mm -hmm. somebody somewhere's hearing it for the very first time. Yeah. And so repetition does work. And I'm afraid it does cut through. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's infuriating if you're watching closely 
because of course you hear the same things over and over again but if you're not you are hearing it as a, a fresh idea mm. and sort of picking it up and running it so i would have had jeremy corbyn visit a hospital every single day of every bit of the campaign <laughs> um to talk about the nhs and i'd have had boris johnson going to businesses talking about let's get brexit done every single day of the election yeah. and not really try to move much beyond that just stick to those messages and see what works yeah it's interesting though because i'm aware that he's also had some conflicts with businesses um at the same time from different things that's been said and and anything to do with financial politics they haven't communicated that well around sure yeah. and there's plenty of businesses so, yeah. that would disagree and there's you know businesses that would sign up to labor's agenda too i'm sure yeah. so yeah it's not as uh it's not as clear-cut as they would have us believe but elections are not a great place for nuance and subtlety and oh, probably, yeah. that, that kind of discussion are they alas everybody get very biased all of a sudden yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah right so just moving a little bit away what does it take what is a really good cut through in the media what makes up a good story well, the old news values still matter. So we like things that are novel, things that are odd or different. We like conflict. We like sex and scandal. We like celebrity. Uh, we like danger. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like triumph over tragedy. You know, this is the sort of roll call of journalistic uh, news values. Mm. And anything that can make something stand out and be unusual and different mm. works. So, I mean, the the, te- the terrible terrorist attack in, in London during the election campaign, one fact that kind of came out of the mix in that was that the, one of the heroic members of the public was using a narwhal's horn right so the 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 tusk of a whale Mm. which he'd picked off the wall of the fishmonger's hall where the attack took place in order to try and stop the assailant Mm. now isn't that just the most bizarre ridiculous you know kind of quixotic strange thing that you would possibly imagine happening and it's a that that suddenly becomes newsworthy that sort of strange little detail becomes newsworthy so often in politics or in in marketing generally it's the unusual the odd the out of the ordinary Mm. that kind of gets you a permission to be heard and a peg onto which the hang to hang the story and the rest of it follows from there so i think those those traditional news values still matter and of course the way you pump them around is yeah. very different now with twitter i mean twitter is basically the news the news wire of old so in the older days we had the, the wires and that's where stories would appear before journalists you know wrote them up or broadcast on the press association reuters and whatever now it's twitter you know every journalist is watching mm-hmm. twitter all the time especially early in the morning to see how the day is going to pan out and using it as their personal newswire service mm-hmm. so getting stories onto twitter is the best way to get it into the hands of you know the journalists that matter to you yeah. and then into the mainstream media and beyond as a result yeah so would that be so I'm no spin doctor. If I want to get uh, my podcast or some piece of content I've made elsewise out there, would you start out on Twitter and other other things that you would do as well podcasts are interesting because I mean there are lots of them in the marketplace mm. uh, but uh, you know if you, for you to get yours into the sort of to break through into the popular consciousness, you would need to have a politician on saying something which was newsworthy because it was a surprise or it was a scandal Mm. or it was counterintuitive in some way. So, you know, somebody switching sides or somebody saying something racist or something to do with the policy, uh, you know, the policy announcement that then is falls to pieces as a result of what you said. So, you know, you could easily get a a podcast up and running if and, and into the mainstream 
if there was the content to start with. But the fact of having a podcast is not news. I would say, well, no, you know, does, does it pass the so what test? And politician gives speech or politician makes announcement or politician knocks on door does not pass the so what test. Mm. People just go, well, so what? Journalists used to be taught about the idea of man bites dog. I don't know if you ever heard that, but if the idea is if a, if a dog bites a man or a woman, mm-hmm. so what? That's what dogs do. If a man or a woman bites a dog, we want to know why. Yeah. Yeah, it's because that's norm. really odd. It's really odd. So um, that's that's how you get news. It's just inverting or subverting the norms and turning it around and flipping it on its head. And, you know, you have a man on a bridge hitting somebody with the horn of a whale. Um, and suddenly we want to know what on earth that's <laughs> well, all about. What's that? Yeah, right. and that takes all the headliners. Right. Yeah. Okay, so just kind of starting to round up a little bit here. So how do you see the role of media being used in the future? Are there any changes on the way or are we kind of where we are? Well, I think there's a danger that we see. So the trend is that things online are viewed as somehow being more authentic and reliable. Uh, and mainstream media is being viewed by many as being fake and unreliable. But the opposite is actually true. I mean, if you look at the reporting of the terrorist incident, most of the really strong reporting came from the Times newspaper in particular mm. and uh, the BBC and Sky and the big mainstream you know, media performance. Had we relied on the internet and social media to tell us what was happening during that incident, it would all be mostly untrue. Mm. Um, Even the interpretations of the video where there was a man running with a great big knife in his hands. Now, when I first saw that, I didn't know who he was. I wondered, was he he a terrorist? Was he somebody involved in a fight? Mm. It turns out he was a civilian who had disarmed a terrorist and was removing the knife from the scene. I mean, I think he's very lucky he didn't get a shot, frankly. But, you know, what what we see may not be real, and then you need real journalists to ask the right questions Mm. to interpret it. So I am... What I'm saying is I don't think, you know, social media is going to take over and replace... Um, traditional journalism. Um, obviously, the symbiosis between the two is far greater now. Uh, mm. it, you know, people are picking stories off Twitter and putting them into the mainstream. And similarly, mainstream stories go big in through into social media and Twitter and Facebook and everything else. But um, the most important thing is we don't lose sight of the truth and facts and, you know, edited content and real journalists doing a real job who are trained to do it rather than just idiots writing rubbish and that being accepted as gospel Mm. um, online. And, I mean, in the election campaign, you've seen a lot of that, just people writing any old rubbish Mm. and thousands of people copying it and retweeting it and believing it. And you create an alternative truth, an alternative universe, really. And that's really dangerous. Mm. I'll let that be the final words. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Buzzes for Breakfast are hosted by me and produced by Studio Roo. If you like our show and want more exciting stories like this, don't forget to follow us. You can get all episodes for free on any of your preferred podcast services. 